As most of you are aware, uh, Pastor Brad finished his little series on the book of Jude last Sunday, and next Sunday, Brad, you begin 1 Timothy. So we look forward to having that great meal together as he moves us through that book. But here on the Sundays in between those two series, I'm bringing the message this morning, obviously. But before we go any further, uh, I need to uh, make a correction. Somehow, between my writing out my outline and sending it to Priscilla, my wife, who's in Brazil, and her sending it back to Renaissance for the printing, somehow the title came out incorrectly. Now, it might not seem like a big deal to you, but I was just concerned about the potential for misunderstanding. The actual title I gave to the message was Safeguarding Sexual Conduct. And the safeguarding sexual contact, I mean, I thought people were going to say, are we going back? Are we applying the days of COVID six feet away from everybody? Uh, so it should be conduct. Uh, Priscilla's been in Brazil for uh, almost two weeks now, and I'm actually, after the service today, driving to Fort Lauderdale so I can pick her up early tomorrow morning as she uh, returns home. But if you would please, as the outline informs you, please turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just again, for those who are here regularly, so there's no confusion, I have been preaching through the Bible from the New American Standard Bible for 52 years. Uh, this morning, I'm actually preaching from the ESV text, if you want to know why. <laughs> Oh, make you happy, Brad. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you afterward, but I've chosen the ESV text to bring this message uh, this morning. So would you please follow along as I read uh, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, this is a potentially a, a delicate uh, subject that we are addressing this morning, but I think it's a topic and a text we've really not addressed in a good number of years here uh, at the chapel. And I sensed um, some months ago that the Lord was laying on my heart to, when I had an opportunity to preach, that uh, we would go through this uh, text uh, together. You'll notice that I see really two main uh, points to Paul's comments here as he's getting ready to conclude the letter to the Thessalonians. 
And the first, in verses 1 and 2, is an exhortation to please God in all of our conduct. A very general statement that certainly is echoed by the other authors of Scripture uh, many times uh, over. But notice as he says finally that the way he introduces this topic is by reminding us of the call uh, to be holy in our conduct, but it's a constant pursuit. And he commends them. He says, I know that you're doing this. But then he comments, but you need to do it all the more, or as the New American Standard Bible says preferably, to excel still more. Paul frequently, when he wants to talk about living the Christian life at street level, he talks about how we walk. And the way we walk means that's how we're living, how we're conducting ourselves. And how we are, are to live brings with it the emphasis is this is how we ought to be living. Notice he uses the word that we ought to be. So there's an obligation here that we're called to live this way. And he says in verse 2 that you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And even just the use of that word, at least in the Greek text, it's a very forceful word that was typically used to be uh, to describe a military command or a civil order given by a court magistrate. So these are not optional things here. This is a command. These instructions carry the authority of command. But notice this too. There's not only the obligation and the oughtness of how we're to be living. There's also the want to. There's also the want to. Because he says that you ought to walk and to please God. Francis, it's really good to see you sitting here this morning. Francis Mueller, I'm calling out. Where was I? Yes, the want to. Uh, that this should be, as the child of God and as a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be our constant aim and heart's desire is not to do something because we have to, but because it pleases God and our heart's desire is to be pleasing to Him. And this is no surprise to us. Over when he was writing to the Ephesians, Paul said, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he said, Therefore also we have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. But nonetheless, it is a command. And it is a command that is not only a constant pursuit, but it comes with the weight of divine authority. And we observe that because He mentions the Lord Jesus. You saw that at the end of verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And so there's a certain apostolic authority that Jesus had bestowed upon the apostles of which Paul is one. To me, it's a good reminder in verses 1 and 2 that in the Christian life, we're never to be static and we've never arrived, that it's something we constantly pursue 
And in fact, he compliments them later on down a few verses later, and he's talking about their love for the brethren. And he says, you're doing a great job of this. In verse 10, he said, but excel still more. He used the same phrase again, which literally means to uh, abundantly abound in these things. We know that the church as the bride of Christ, of which you and I are members, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that as the bride of Christ, that Jesus' role as the bridegroom is that he's in the midst of doing even now what it says in Ephesians 5.27, that he might present to himself, that is the Lord Jesus, the church and all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And of course, the word we use for becoming more like Jesus, and what it means to become more and more holy is the word sanctification. That means set apart for a holy purpose unto God. So part of this process of sanctification, he moves from the general exhortation to something very specific. And that's the content of verses 3 through 8. An exhortation to please God, be pleasing God specifically in our sexuality. Now, I know that as soon as we begin the journey of walking with Christ, uh, we understand the importance of uh, being in concert with the will of God for our lives. And there are so many things in our lives that we seek His will about, and that we should, especially decisions about education and where we live and who we marry and what job we take, careers, and on and on. And so often, believers kind of wring their hands because they're having a difficult time discerning the will of God about one decision or choice or another. But keep in mind that most of God's will for us we can know with certainty, and it's clearly laid out in the Bible. And one of those things that's laid out with certainty is his statement in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, not just becoming more holy generally, but specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I know that rationalization as well as the pressure and of uh, the culture, sometimes we want to take passages of Scripture that are, seem too restrictive and try to loosen them up a bit. And I have heard over the years, for example, that what he's referring to here about abstaining from sexual immorality is he's talking about not being unfaithful in marriage. He's talking about adultery or infidelity. But I've written it out word for word here. The word he uses for sexual immorality is a word I'm sure you've heard mentioned before, is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. And one of the most uh, definitive lexicons on New Testament Greek by Arton Gingrich gives this definition for porneia. Prostitution, unchastity, fornication, of every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. The last part of that definition for porneia, every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. And he had mentioned several ways that expresses itself by mentioning the unchastity, fornication, 
etc. There's actually a different word for adultery, moikeia. That doesn't appear in this text, but certainly moikeia comes under the rubric of porneo because it's one kind of unlawful sexual intercourse, and of course it means unlawful in the eyes of God. Obviously, he is not denouncing our sexuality. Our sexuality is a gift of God. When God created man and saw him in his aloneness after saying in all the creator days, it's good, it is good, it's good, it's good. Then he says it's very good, but then he says there's something that's not good. And it's the fact that Adam was alone. And so he made Eve from Adam's rib and brought her to him. And Adam saw it as a gift, someone corresponding to him. In fact, the Living Bible that we used to use years ago, that's kind of a paraphrase of the Scripture to be more understandable to children, they uh, translated or paraphrased Adam's response when he saw Eve there in Genesis as, this is it, you know, and that was his uh, zealous, enthusiastic uh, reception of having a wife. It's not dirty or sinful to find oneself as you're growing towards adulthood, to find yourself more and more interested in the opposite sex, to be dealing with sexual desires, with the emergence of hormones that are driving us towards wanting a sexual intimacy which is designed by God. But God not only has given us this gift of sexuality, He has also laid out for us how these desires are to be fulfilled, and it's within the God-given bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. To seek satisfaction outside of marriage is to break God's laws. To seek satisfaction before marriage breaks God's laws, and there are inevitable consequences. You know, we can never skirt around breaking God's laws. There will be consequences, and I'm going to come back to some of those in just a bit. But I would uh, deduce from looking at Paul's remarks here in this call to abstain from sexual immorality that there's two things motivating him to give this admonition at this point. And the first is that he is acknowledging what is one of the most powerful urges of human beings. It's one of our most powerful desires. It's something that we always contend with when we come of age. And secondly, he knew who he was writing to. The sexual laxity and the promiscuity of the Apostle Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world, historians have written endless pages about the moral decline in the Greco-Roman world. Paul is writing from Corinth, and he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. And to those of you who've done your Bible study over the years know that Corinth was known for its licentiousness. They had a temple on the top of the hill that looked over the city that every night at sundown, all the temple prostitutes carrying their torches filtered down into the city to see who wanted to pay for their services. And he's writing to those in Thessalonica who are not far from dealing with the same kinds of things. We read that, 
and about Corinth and its terrible reputation. In fact, it even became a, a saying that if you were to Corinthianize, it meant you were to live in this very profligate way, the way they were known for doing in the city of Corinth. I look at that and I shake my head, but I don't shake my head any more at that than I do what I see going on in the society that I live in and the world that we live in. I was talking with a pastor in another state just the other day, and he just said, you know, we've become Rome. We've become Rome. The world has its lies that we have to contend with, and one of those lies is that as long as, as it's consensual between two adults, sexual activity is fine, just practice safe sex, which is a misnomer. Ultimately, there's nothing safe about it when you're doing it outside the parameters of what God has laid out. There's also the lie that it's just simply a biological function. There's also the lie that you can have casual sex as a way of having meaningful personal relationships. And there's still another lie that the world feeds us constantly, is that it's good to live together before you're married. Because that way it's like test driving a car. You get to know each other and know whether you're compatible in every area of life before you get married. And of course, all you have to do is, I don't deliberately turn it on. I mean, I'm not judging you if you do, but whenever the world news is over at 7 o'clock, the next thing that comes on on my TV station is entertainment tonight. And sometimes I'm not paying attention, but once I'm looking at it, I last about six or seven minutes before I change the station. It's, it's just more like a gossip show, and they're always just parading these actors and actresses and musicians who are famous. They're showing off their baby bumps, and they're living together, and they're not married, and this is just a wonderful thing. They're living the fast life, the glitzy life, and it looks so dazzling, but at its heart, it's, it's wicked. Uh, it is sinful. But there is a positive. There's a positive to this, having given this exhortation to abstain from sexual immorality, and that is dealing with our sexuality in a holy manner, in holiness and honor. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Some translations say vessel. I think the New American Standard Bible does. Reason for that is sometimes uh, the body is referred to as a vessel uh, in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4 7, Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Uh, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And so the command here is that you learn to control your own body according to the standards of honor and holiness that the Scripture prescribes for us. Then he says in verse 5, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. 
And when we look at the world, which the Gentiles was a way of describing people who were non-Jewish, the world at large, they were characterized by being carried away by lustful passions, whether in marriage or outside of marriage. And our society bombards us constantly with sexual images to sell every product under the sun. I mean, it's just every product under the sun, it's amazing how they can bring the physical attraction of males and females and some sexual innuendo into the message being sent. I don't know how anybody with young children watches the halftime of Super Bowl. I mean, it's just, it's just disgusting what they will parade in front of the whole world. Anything but honorable, and certainly anything but holy. Now, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians and touches on this same subject, he says there in this way, flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his body. And I don't know that I understand this completely myself, because sin is sin, but there is something unique about sexual sin from Paul's comment here that does something to our soul. It does something to our soul when we begin to rebel or renounce or walk away from what God has called us to do by the way of our conduct sexually. When he was writing to Timothy, who was a young pastor, he said, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, for those who jettison these things, I told you I was going to mention something about consequences. It's not unusual for parents or even uh, some teachers in schools to kind of lay out the dangers of being sexually active before marriage. One of the first things that's usually mentioned is the threat of disease, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, STDs. Even with all of our medications, it was reported about a year ago this month that more than two and a half million cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis were reported in the previous year. And the CDC reports that the annual cases of STDs in the United States climbed to an all-time high for the sixth consecutive year in a row in 2019. The last stat I'll throw at you. What percentage of new STD cases each year are from 15 to 24-year-olds? Half of all STDs in America. you got not only emotional damage, excuse me, physical disease, but you have emotional damage, especially for the Christian who compromises in this area because they're inevitably, hopefully, carries some guilt. It affects self-esteem. There's a certain grief that comes with knowing that you have forfeited that which God wanted you to save for marriage. And of course, there's the possibility of pregnancy. And as I just stated, there's the spiritual damage of what happens to one's soul when we disobey God in this area. 
Brad uh, drew my attention to a, uh, an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, of all places, and it's two and a half pages, and I have just a couple of sentences I've underlined in red. I thought you would find this interesting in light of this, uh, this topic. Uh, these two men, one of them is the director of the National Marriage, uh, Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. And he has been working and uh, studying with the uh, U.S. government's National Survey of Family Growth in America. And they're stating in this op-ed piece that the conventional wisdom, uh, at least for the last couple of decades, is that it's better if you wait till you're 30 years old to marry because you're more likely to be mature enough to find just the right spouse and have a lifelong marriage. And in fact, the median age for the first marriage for people in America, believe it or not, now is age 29 for women and age 30 for men. Now, I'll quote it directly. One sociologist found that women who got married too early in their early to mid-20s are more likely to break up than their peers who married close to age 30. And that's been pretty much the line we've heard for some time. But listen to what these guys involved with this project discovered. As we recently discovered, however, there's an interesting exception to the idea that waiting until 30 is best. In analyzing reports of marriage and divorce from more than 50,000 women in the U.S. government's National Survey of Family Growth, we found there is a group of women for whom marriage before 30 is not risky. Women who marry directly without ever cohabiting prior to marriage. In fact, women who married between ages 22 and 30 without first living together had some of the lowest rates of divorce in the nation. They're surprised. I'm not. One last comment from them. The idea that cohabitation is risky is surprising given that a majority of young adults believe that living together is a good way to, pre to pretest the quality of your partner and your partnership, thereby increasing the quality and stability of your marriage. But a growing body of research indicates that Americans who live together before marriage are less likely to be happily married and more likely to land in divorce court. So they concluded the whole thing by just saying, what's clear is this, if you're a young woman thinking about getting married but worried about divorce, our research suggests that you need not wait until you're 30. So long as you've found a good partner and don't move in with anyone until after your wedding day. Now, I didn't need to read that there to know that's the way God calls us to live, but it's interesting that when even in the culture at large, they begin to discover these patterns of behavior. And so, <clears throat> it's God's will that we abstain from being sexually immoral. Uh, we're to pursue our sexuality in holiness and in honor. But there's also a matter of accountability to fellow believers. I don't know if you picked up on that in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, in this matter are the sexual sins he's just been talking about. The word that the New American Standard Bible uses, do not defraud your brother. That is, to take advantage of or overreach. And particularly in the Christian congregation, anyone engaging in sexual sin will inevitably 
inevitably injure fellow believers. Especially if a man commits adultery with another man's wife. Certainly one's sexual conduct can impact the parents of one's partner. Or if a man is immoral with a woman who will end up being another man's wife. And in fact, something I've passed along as advice for a very long time is that if you were dating a Christian, and you should only be dating a Christian if you are a Christian, physical affection between the two of you should not exceed the point that if you all end up breaking up and marrying someone else, that as married couples you could get together and have no level of discomfort or awkwardness because of the way you related to each other before you all parted and married someone else. So don't think this is just my decision, it affects only me because, because it doesn't. Most immediately, it's the one that you're being immoral with, but then everyone else that she's associated with or he's associated with. But you know, something that I have concluded, and I don't want to dismiss these other consequences. I mean, certainly STDs and pregnancy and those things are potential negative consequences. But I've decided that even though this has been preached by the culture and the church for a very long time, it doesn't seem to be working. And what I mean by working, there's still a considerable number of Christians, and I'm more familiar with college age. I've ministered in a city of, with college students for over 40 years. I haven't had any firsthand experience like Brad's wealth of experience in working with teenagers and youth. But there's something for the Christian that I think is the most, should be the primary overriding consequence that you want to avoid. And that is, you don't want to cross this line of sexual immorality because it dishonors and disobeys your Heavenly Father. I think that has got to be the clincher reason that you decide to live this way. Because there is an accountability to God. And that's his point in verses 7 and 8. In fact, look at the language he uses. Verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Verse 6 is what I meant to say. And that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. The word avenger only appears one other time in the New Testament, and it's over in Romans 13 where God appoints the government to be a minister and avenger to the law-breaking. So it's used of government to punish citizens who break the law, and it's used here of our Lord God. He is the avenger that is the one who brings punishment on those who step across the line in this area of life. And as Paul says at the end of verse 6, it's not just that he has warned them previously, he has solemnly warned them. It's a very serious matter. For the unbeliever, it's a serious matter because along with all other sins that are not uh, atoned for, they will stand before God in the judgment and they'll give account for their sexual immorality as well as all their other sins. 
And for the believer, you can bet you're going to be under the hand of God by His discipline. No, you won't lose your salvation. That's secure if you've truly trusted in Christ. But Hebrews 12 teaches us that the Lord disciplines those He loves. And we're not going to live this way and not have the heavy hand of God upon us. Because God has called us to holiness, not impurity. And that's just not an option. It's, and it's not only actions that He's addressing. We know this from other places in Scripture. This addresses our thought life as well. I know you know these verses, but I'm going to read them again from Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that is why our thought life matters. Sexual sin begins in the heart and the mind. And that's why pornography becomes such a quagmire. It's, it's quicksand because what it's doing is it's assaulting your thought life. And at times, you're becoming enslaved to it. I said the heavy hand of God would be upon those who transgress in this area. But also notice this. You can disregard or reject what the Bible says on this issue, what God says on this issue. But it says here in verse 8, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, you won't be disregarding what I've said. You will be disregarding what God has said who gives His Holy Spirit to you. The famous Old Testament story of Joseph, of course, when he has a very high position overseeing the household of an Egyptian dignitary named Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife had eyes for Joseph and kept trying to lure him into the bedroom, and he kept resisting. Finally, he said to her, there's no one greater in this house than I, and he, her husband, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. And so he's obviously acknowledging that he's indebted to this man, and how could he dare break this trust? But he doesn't, that's not all that he says. He follows up that with the next sentence. How then could I do this great evil and sin against, not Potiphar, against God? He realizes that first and foremost, that's where his accountability is. So, with the temptations and the pressures that are common to all of us, I want to give you, well, in the past it's been six, sometimes I say five. Today I'm giving you four safeguards, how to safeguard one's sexual purity. And I'm just going to share these four with you. The first is to guard your time in the Scriptures. We all know that that's how the vine and the branches stay connected as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God and as the Holy Spirit convicts and moves and speaks to us through the Word. Psalm 119.9 that 
Many young men are asked to memorize if they grew up in a Christian home, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Now, it's not like if you're reading the Bible every day, it doesn't mean you're not going to have any lust or have any sexual temptation. But what it means is, is we're reading the Bible regularly. We are beginning to think God's thoughts after Him, and God's view of these things has a place front and center in our filter and how we see the world around us and what we decide to think about and what we decide to pursue or desire. I already mentioned guarding your thought life. It's so important that we have a filter on what we read and what we watch. I mean, they're laughable, but not really. Some of the most immoral messages on sexuality are sitcoms that come through our television sets nightly or to go online. As I said before, they use sex to sell almost anything. I have a friend uh, years and years ago, uh, I don't know if he had gone to a friend's house or a relative's house, but for whatever reason when they were there, the people they were visiting were showing them their house. They hadn't lived there long. And he had his little five-year-old daughter with him. And um, he said they walked into their college son's room and there was this big poster on the wall of a bright red, uh, I think it was a Ferrari. And Reclining on the hood of the car was a model in a bikini. And so my friend started to kind of move out of the room, and his little daughter stopped and looked at it and said, that's what happens when you don't wear your seatbelt. <laughs> Third safeguard is to guard propriety. It's not a word I hear much anymore. That's a very important word. Propriety simply means proper boundaries of behavior. Do not, single people, be alone with the opposite sex in a setting where you would be vulnerable to going too far. Now that's easier said than done, but Maybe you thought you didn't hear me right. Do not be alone with the opposite sex in a setting where you would be vulnerable to going too far. In my previous church, for many, many, many years, uh, I had the um, practice of establishing a college leadership council. It was usually 10 or 12 students, guys and girls, and they were the ones that led small group Bible studies, and I met with them regularly and discipled them while they sought to disciple the students. But I had requirements that they had to agree to, not many, but one of the requirements if they were going to be in leadership in our church's college ministry is they had to commit to this very point, that they would not be alone with the opposite sex in a setting where they would be vulnerable to going too far. That meant not being in someone else's apartment, not going having dinner with him at his apartment with the two of you alone. And inconvenient, yes, but you might ask yourself, why would I require that? Isn't that being legalistic? Isn't that going a bit far? Well, I guess for too many times, like one couple that still comes to mind, they came in to see me in my study one day. They had been dating, both of them professing Christians, really sweet young couple. 
As soon as they came in and sat down in my office, I knew that something was up because uh, they were both pretty nervous and tearful. And the fact is, uh, two nights before, uh, they ended up having sex on her sofa. And I asked, you know, how did this come about in this situation? He said, well, we were going to study together. And so I was studying with her, and her roommates were all gone. And we were studying. And it got to be about 10, 10.30. We were kind of tired of studying, studying. And he said, why don't we watch a movie? So we sat on the sofa together with our arms around each other to watch a movie. And before we knew it, this happened. And see, I'm not surprised that something happened. But what's surprising is the ignorance that some of us have to think, I'm by myself with a girl that I'm attracted to on her sofa with my arm around her late at night watching a movie. I mean, you're just putting yourself in a situation to fall. You're setting yourself up to fall. Because we often underestimate how strong our sexual passions can be. It would be the same thing as somebody whose house burns down. Well, how did it burn down? Well, I had this table next to the window, and I put a candle on it, and we had all these old newspapers, and there was a curtain hanging there blowing, and somehow the house got on fire. I mean, it's just a matter of ignoring and, and things that are just common sense if you want to keep doing the right thing. Some of you weren't even born back when we had our first national championship, but uh, the quarterback uh, in the 96 Gator Championship football team was Danny Werfel, and um, I was pleased to have been his pastor the last year and a half. He was here in Gainesville, and after he had, I think it was after he had gotten the Heisman Trophy, uh, he was invited to pray, uh, play in the, um, I think, the college all-star bowl out in Hawaii, and he decided to take his girlfriend with him. And the way the flights were working, because it was so far from Florida to Hawaii, they were having a, a night stay over in San Francisco, staying in a hotel, then flying on to Hawaii the next day. Well, a reporter is the one who kind of blew the whistle on this. The reporter came through the hotel lobby early in the morning and noticed Danny Werfel sleeping on the sofa. And he went over and said, they didn't have a room for you? He said, yeah, but there was a misunderstanding. I needed two rooms because my girlfriend's with me. And since there was only one, um, I you know, decided to give it to her. And the reporter said, well, couldn't you have just slept on the floor up there? And, but no. And I said, now, why did he do this? Well, there were two reasons. One, he was concerned about how it would appear, because most people would assume if your girlfriend's in the hotel with you overnight that you're being intimate sexually. And secondly... He was smart because he did not want to underestimate his own response to temptation. I think that's one of the most admirable things I've heard. What a great testimony that he made that kind of a decision. And that's what I'm talking about, about propriety, guarding the boundaries of proper behavior. I've been uh, directing most of my thoughts towards single people here today. And these first three things, particularly that I've mentioned, uh, guarding your time in the Scripture, guarding your thought life, and guarding propriety, uh, those apply to single people especially, but they also apply to married people. They also apply to married people. The fourth safeguard, not so much, 
Because the fourth safeguard is this. Guard against physical affection. Guard against it. Now, whenever I've given teaching on this over the years with college students, I get the same question every single time, and you probably have already asking yourself, how far can I go? How far is too far? And how far can you go? Not very far. Very little. I'm going to make a statement. It's a statement that I heard when I was 19 years old. I've never forgotten it, and I'm going to pass it on to you. The first step towards sexual intercourse is holding hands. The first step towards sexual intercourse is holding hands. Is it wrong to hold hands? No. But part of the way that God has created and designed us to fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply is the way physical affection is to trigger one step leading to another. And our responsibility is to maintain control so that what triggers from one step to the next doesn't continue on until you go across the line you shouldn't go. I don't know if they still do this, but when I was in high school, they had driver's ed. And you could only have so much fun at driver's ed because they had these things. Do they still have them? Governors that you put on a car and it limits how fast you can go. I think like speed setters, there was something in the engine that no matter, even if you floored it, it would only go so fast. Single men and women, we need to be putting governors on ourselves about just how physically affectionate uh, we become with that boyfriend or girlfriend. Something else that was said to me as a very, very young man, if I wasn't 19, I was 20, I had an older brother of the Lord tell me, if the girl you're dating, if she is not going to be your wife, she will be the wife of a brother in Christ. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because at the time, uh, my girlfriend from high school, uh, I was a senior, she was a junior, and we dated my senior year, my first year of college. Now, husbands, it's not wise to talk about your old girlfriends, but Priscilla's in Brazil, so I can tell <laughs> um, and uh, we, we did not become immoral and have sex together in our two years of dating. But I was starting to be concerned about 15 and 20-minute kisses goodnight at the door in the car and probably being more affectionate than we should have. And I was feeling some conviction about it when this older brother said to me, if whoever you're dating is not going to be your wife and she's a Christian, she's going to be the wife of some brother in Christ. And that just made such an impact on me. And I'm going to probably lose a lot of you with this statement. Joel, you know what I'm going to say. When I started dating Priscilla, I had just broken up with this other girl, and I thought, and I just made this vow to the Lord. No one told me to make it. I just felt inclined to make it. Lord, I don't want to kiss another girl until this is one I'm going to marry. And I was determined to do that. Priscilla and I started dating in January, and I kissed her the first time the next December. And I've never told anyone else they should do that. Uh, I can assure you, well, I can't assure you, but I don't think my sons did that. <laughs> I'll let you admit that later, Joel. <laughs> um, 
But again, I had people speaking into my life that just made me sensitive to this issue about how we relate to each other and these areas of physical affection. So as we wrap it up here for today, sex is a God-given expression of love of man and woman for each other and marriage. And God has given that setting, heterosexual, monogamous marriage. And God has given us the practice that it should be pursued in honor and holiness. But our motive is to be not so much to obey the law, but to please the lawgiver. I want to come back to pleasing God and honoring Him in this. And for those of you who are single and you have remained not sexually active, I commend you. God bless you and hang in there because the Lord will give wonderful fruit in your life as you pursue this course until you're married. And I know, speaking to the number of people that are in this room right now, that some of you have already failed. Perhaps you forfeited your virginity before marriage or even now in singleness, or perhaps there's been infidelity in marriage. But I want to just conclude with this thought. For the Christian, failure is never final with God. Failure is never final with God. True repentance brings true forgiveness and restoration. And if that was not true, failure is never final with God. Brad would not be a pastor. I would not be a pastor. Well, especially Brad. But <laughs> If you're visiting, Brad and I have a very close and trusting relationship. We, we, we poke fun at each other from time to time. Well, those are the things that uh, I felt I should bring to your attention this morning, and I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me now. Lord God, thank you for instituting the gift of marriage. Thank you for designing us with sexual desires that enable us to experience a unity between husband and wife that finds an expression of love in the most intimate and holy of ways. Lord, help each one of us to resist and to reject the lust of the world as well as the lust of our own hearts. Uh, give us patience and self-control, especially for single folks who are praying and yearning to, to be married and looking for that day. And as they pray and remain faithful, I pray it wouldn't just be gutting it out and enduring it, but Lord, give them contentment even during the wait. And Lord, help us as a church and as a church that teaches the Bible to continue to proclaim the biblical ethic of sexual morality. There's many other things going on in our country that we've not touched on today, but basically, Lord, the very concept of home and marriage is being assaulted on all sides. And even as Brad has been exhorting us in Jude in recent weeks that we need to contend for the truth of the Bible. Help us to do that faithfully and boldly. In Jesus' name, amen.